Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. So, uh, but I, I feel if we can make it through chapter 19 tonight, we'll, we'll start, getting, start getting ready to land the plane. Maybe, uh, maybe think about putting the landing gear down next week uh, with the last couple chapters, and maybe the, the, the airstrip will come in view. And so uh, we'll see. All right. We're, we're actually in part two of a, uh, two, two parts that we've called Weddings and Wars because that's what Revelation chapter 19 is about. And uh, so uh, we're just going to uh, look at verses 11 through 21 this evening. Um, and uh, why don't we stand and we'll get a few verses here as our text, and then we'll go to work. Revelation chapter 19, and let's begin at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called, say that with me, faithful and true. Oh, what a name. Faithful and true. And in righteousness... He doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean." And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that which it, uh, he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, say this with me, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I small, uh, excuse me, I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them and had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both, somebody say both of them, were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Father, thank you once again for the revelation, 
the revelation you gave John, but you also gave to us. You have protected this revelation through the centuries so that we here tonight can receive, Lord, the instruction and inspiration from it. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand and our minds to comprehend what you'd like to say to us this evening. In Jesus' precious name, all God's children say amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. In our last study, we covered verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19. So notice with me on your study guide, in tonight's study, we see that verse 11 shifts the focus from a bridal suite in heaven to a battle scene on earth. And the writer John is like a journalist. He's on location. He's in Israel, and he's covering this final battle. He's standing on a hill overlooking the valley we know as Megiddo. The French general I mentioned a few weeks back, Napoleon, stood at this same area and made the remark, and I quote, he said, why, all the armies of the world could maneuver for battle here. That was prophetic in a sense. Maybe he had read the book of Revelation. Who knows? But according to verse 16, that's exactly what happens. The armies of a worldwide coalition of nations underneath the influence of the Antichrist will gather in this valley called Megiddo. Now, they're not gathering here because they want Megiddo, okay? Megiddo is just the gathering ground. Their sights are set on another city. Anybody remember? Jerusalem, that's right. All eyes are on Jerusalem. So while this is often called the Battle of Armageddon, it's really just the staging ground. Armageddon is the staging ground. It's really the battle for or of Jerusalem. And according to Joel, Old Testament prophet, Joel in chapter 3 verse 2, he tells us that God will draw the nations to the holy city. Notice this, and I quote, he says, I will gather all nations and I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the valley of Megiddo or Armageddon, same thing. And will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And notice this, they have parted my land. So I want you to see God's complaint against the nations. His complaint is that they have parted, or a.k.a. divided, what he calls my land, which is Israel. They had no right to do so. How many know what we call the Holy Land today belongs to God? And he can give it to whoever he pleases, right? How many know this issue has political ramifications even today? 
the global community, they are continuously pressuring Israel to divvy up the land that God gave them and surrender part of it or parcels of it to the Palestinians, even when the Palestinians have enough land to settle. Today, Jerusalem is a divided city, east and west. That angers God. That's not what he wanted. That's never been the plan. In the last days here of our text, troops are going to march on Jerusalem to further divvy it up or divide Israel. But while camped near the mountain of Megiddo, or Armageddon. Here's what we see. Something strange, unexpected occurs. And that's where John picks up. He says, I saw heaven open. Now earlier, back in Revelation chapter 4, in verse 1, he saw heaven open for the first time. It opened in Revelation 4.1 to let the church enter heaven. Now it opens for Christ and his church to come out of heaven. Did you get that? So heaven opens while all these armies are beginning to gather at Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo. Heaven opens, and John says, the general of all generals appears. Praise God. All right, so he begins to describe what's going on, what's transpiring around this general. So that's where we're going to break this chapter down. We're going to break it down in about five points on your study guide. Roman numeral one. Christ's transportation. Verse 1 says, And behold, a white horse. The heavens open, and Christ comes riding out on a what? White horse. Now, if you remember, the Antichrist mimicked this earlier. Because how many know he's all about imitating the actual Christ? Be that as it may, though, I want you to recall with me the first time Christ presented himself to the nation of Israel when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That time, he came with humility. That time, he came to serve. That time, but somebody say, this time, is no donkey ride. He's riding on a white stallion. And the difference is the fact that to John, notice on your study guide in his generation, a white horse was symbolic of a victorious general or even an emperor. Because the Romans liked to parade their conquering generals on the backs of white stallions 
that would prance and strut and play the crowd, and basically those were show horses. They were show animals. So the white horse was symbolic of a victorious emperor. Now, John's comparison only goes so far because Christ's horse is not a show horse. It's a war horse. And he's ready to charge. The horse John sees is bred for battle. It's as if he's shaking his mane, he's rearing back on his hind legs, and hot breath is billowing out his nostrils. He's ready to go. And John says that is the tr champion's transportation at this event. Roman numeral two, Christ's identification. John writes in verse 11, he that sat upon him, the white stallion, was called, we said it earlier when we read the text, Say it with me, faithful and true. This is the first and only time this name of Christ appears in Scripture. The name faithful and true expresses the absolute trustworthiness, reliability, and dependability of Christ. How many know you can trust Him? This title reveals Christ's character, makes known his words and his works. I was reading after Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a, a pastor and a prolific writer, illustrated this point in his commentary that he wrote on the book of Revelation, in that he recalled a woman who was on her deathbed talking to her family and her friends about her assurance of salvation. She knew she was going to pass, but she was ecstatic. She was testifying about the fact that she knew when she closed her eyes on this side, she would open them on the other side in heaven. A young minister happened to visit her, and he had never seen anyone so certain of their future with the Lord. And so he thought it was his job to warn her against being so dogmatically sure. But I like her reply because her reply gave that young minister a little bit of needed education. And she said this, she said, well, if I should awake in eternity and find myself among the lost, the Lord will lose more than I would. He asked, how's that? And she said, well, I might lose my soul but he would lose his good name. That's true because he has never not kept his word. Right? If Christ is for one moment and with one person unfaithful and untruthful, he's lost everything. And so John records this vision by saying, I saw heaven open. The Lord is descending upon a white horse just as he promised he would. He has kept his word because he is faithful and true. Amen. Amen. Number three on your study guide. We've seen Christ's transportation, Christ's identification. How about number three, Christ's vindication. Next, we're told that in righteousness, 
he judges and makes war. I thought it interesting this week, people are always quick to remember the promises of Christ, promises to forgive, promises to save, promises to heal, promises to deliver, but very few seem familiar with his promise to judge and to make war. But how many know that's one of his promises? Here Christ is living up to that promise of righteous judgment. Christ is not just bringing a choir, okay? We're talking about the heavens opening. He's coming, many with him, okay? He's not just bringing a choir. He's bringing an army. So that he and his church will be forever vindicated. If you recall an Old Testament passage like Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 8, God tells us, he says, there's a time for war. And there's a time for peace. Here in the text is not the time for peace. Peace is going to be coming in the future, but at that moment it's a time of war. At his first entry into Jerusalem, Christ came to save. But this time, he comes to slaughter. He comes to slaughter those who have resisted his salvation. He comes to judge and make war with the armies of this world. Mankind has refused to submit and end their resistance, end their uh, rebellion. And as they remain defiant, Christ says, it's time for that madness to end. Somebody said that when Christ appears on this white horse, he's coming to quote, Bust chops, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. I said, okay, well, that's one way to say it, right? That's one way to put it. But see, the Gospels display Christ as a lamb. But the book of Revelation displays him as a lion. Moses made a stunning statement. I, I ran across it this week, thought it was interesting. He made a statement in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. And this is what he says. He said, the Lord is a man of war. It's a direct quote. Isaiah 42, 13 chimes in and says, the Lord shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. Friends, I know we call Christ the Prince of Peace, but how many know our Prince of Peace is not a pacifist? Okay? In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, I believe it is, Paul speaks of the rapture, which is where Christ will come in the clouds for us, the church. That's in the beginning of the book of Revelation. In verse 18, that same chapter, he follows it up by saying, comfort one another with these words. The rapture is intended to comfort. But how many know there's a couple phases to the rapture? And this is the final phase, what we call the second coming, which happens after the great tribulation. And at this phase, 
John's not writing at this phase to comfort people. Hey, this stuff will scare the devil out of you. It goes to prove we want Christ to be our Savior, not our judge. Right? In this day, the Antichrist and his allies will appear to be a challenging force. They'll be stretched across the theater floor, adding to their blasphemy, strengthening God's case against them. When suddenly, John says, I see heaven open, and the champion of all champions step out. That takes us next to point number four, Christ's domination. And it's quite a descriptive domination. Verse 12 describes him, this champion, when he steps out of heaven on that white horse, John notices his eyes were as a what? Flame of fire. Now the fire in his eyes implies he's not coming in compassion. He's not coming in grace and mercy. No, he's coming in righteous anger, rage, and wrath. He's not coming to save. He's coming to judge. His eyes are burning, notice on your study guide, with vengeance. His holy, piercing vision into the heart of mankind is part and parcel of his holy judgment. And John says, nothing, nothing will escape his notice. Now, the world might try to say, how can you judge us? You weren't here. You didn't see us do anything wrong. The truth is, Christ comes, John tells us, with omniscient vision. He is an omnipresent witness. His eyes have seen all the information necessary to render a just verdict. Next, notice on his head are many crowns. In the Greek, there is diadems. And at the first coming, how many know the only crown Christ wore was a crown of thorns? But now, he wears royal diadems. Those are kingly crowns. Notice on your study guide, a diadem was a crown of royalty. A diadem was often an elaborate, it's really a headband about uh, two inches wide. Jewels could be attached to it or other symbols or insignias. Uh, after Ptolemy VI, the king of Egypt, defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, which was 160 years before the birth of Christ, he wore, history says, Ptolemy VI wore two diadems on his head. One represented his sovereignty over Egypt, and the second one represented his sovereignty over Asia. So what John is telling us here is that Christ is wearing multiple or many diadems, meaning he has conquered every other king and conquered every other kingdom. Oh, that sounded pretty good. He rules everywhere, and guess what? rules everyone. Next, he had a name written that no man knew save himself. Perhaps, I think this is on your study guide, perhaps Christ has a combat nickname. 
You know, through history, some generals have had combat nicknames given them like uh, Red Baron, Top Gun, right? Uh, it was said that the crusader King Richard I of England was nicknamed, become known as the Lionheart, right? Remember that from history? That's kind of a nice one. But the thing we need to understand is that Christ's undisclosed name here, what it really speaks of is mystery and uh, transcendence, meaning that he is above us, he is beyond us, he is not under our authority, he does not answer to us, he is not being judged by us, it doesn't matter if we have his birth certificate. It doesn't matter if we can see his tax returns. It doesn't matter if we even know his name. The point is, he's not answering to us. He is here to judge us, not the other way around. That's the idea. Okay, next verse 13 tells us he has... Uh, clothed himself with a vesture, which is a robe, and it's been dipped in blood. Now, there's an interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 63 that is really a good sister reference, if you can call it that, uh, in correlation with this passage. Because really, when you study these two texts, Isaiah and John both see the Savior with his robe soaked in the blood of his enemies. And at his first visit, if you recall in the Gospels, the Roman soldiers gambled for Christ's bloody robe. When he returns, notice on your study guide, his robe will be stained with the blood of soldiers who fight for a revived Rome. Because they refuse to wear the blood of Christ upon their hearts, Christ will wear their blood on his garments. See the twist? Next, notice the last part of verse 13. His name is called the Word of God. In the Greek, it's Logos. The Spirit of God through John, if you recall, same author, introduced us to that expression back in chapter 1 of his gospel, okay? When he said, in the beginning was the word, logos, and the word or logos was with God, and the word was God. Remember that? Now, here, the one who is coming, John says, I see him on this, this white horse, uh, coming to defeat his enemies and reign on planet earth now, is the same Logos that dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, and as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So the written word authored by the living word empowers us to deliver his spoken word to a world that will one day give an account before his eternal word who is coming back and will reign forever and ever and ever. And notice verse 14 says, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white 
and clean. How many realize this is the same clothing mentioned earlier in this same chapter when we were talking about at the wedding? And it was in reference to the bride of Christ. Remember that? So this is the church being pictured here. John describes the clothing of the bride, fine linen, white, clean. This is a message of triumph for the church above all others. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that Christ gave his church when he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How do we know that's not going to happen? Because in the back of the book in Revelation 19, we've made it to heaven. And we're seen coming back with him. So for the believer, the timeline is now complete. A rapture, a resurrection, a reunion, a return, and now a reign with Christ. For the church, her days of conflict, her days of rejection, her days of persecution are all over. So we may ask, okay, so who is everybody in this army that we see coming back with Christ. Well, a lot of commentators say it's divided in about four different battalions. First, we have the angelic guard who consists of the cherubim, seraphim, the living creatures. They are what we know in the book of Revelation as God's special forces. Hmm? The seal team. And, and they've, they've wanted a piece of the serpent Ever since he fell. Okay? Second, we're talking about who makes up this, this ten thousands of thousands that's returning with Christ. Second, we have the Old Testament believers. For Abraham, Joshua, David, it's been a long time since they've felt the rush of combat. But they've had plenty of time to get ready. Third, you have the tribulation saints. Their wounds are fresh. They took one for the team, so to speak. These martyrs would love nothing more than to get even with the beast. And then the fourth battalion of, of the Lord's army, get ready for it. Are you ready? It's going to blow your mind. It's you. And it's me. We the church... We'll ride with Christ. And John says, oh, what an impressive procession. He describes it. What majesty, what glory. And Christ continues. The fact that we get to join him, I mean, he's continuing. It shows us that he continues to lavish upon us his grace. How many know the grace of God is the only reason we get included in this scene? Puny little us. Yet we're allowed to ride to victory in the very same way as our great general. How many knows if we were Christ? Yeah, we would ride the stallion. Everybody else would get a skateboard. Come on now. Huh? We're faltering. We're failing. We're stumbling. Cowardly. Often finicky. Limited. Faithless. Oftentimes selfish. Impatient saints. Yet as members of this triumphant bridal procession, we will 
gallop forward just like the King of Kings, just like the Lord of Lords. He takes us with him. Praise God. Imagine a president coming, uh, let's say, imagine a president-elect coming by your home and saying, look, now, when I'm inaugurated into office, I want you out there with me on the steps of the Capitol. I want you to stand beside me. I mean, you'd be like, me? You want me? Right? How many would be like, you want me? Now, I want you to think a million times greater than that. We have an eternal king coming to the throne. And he says, I want you with me. Oh, hallelujah. I don't know about you, but that does something for me. What incredibly uh, thrilling and majestic, glorious, exciting fulfillment this will be. I mean, to see Christ coming back with thousands of his saints. Uh, and it says we're on white horses. I, I personally believe these are indeed literal white horses because, I mean, even to this day, I'd rather be on a white horse than drive a white Cadillac. Even today, no matter how many forms of transportation we have invented through the decades, no matter how fast it travels, I just don't think there's nothing quite as majestic and as stirring as a horse at full gallop. And just me a little bit there. But imagine what John sees and hears. Millions upon millions of white horses galloping across the skies toward Jerusalem. The king is coming, and he's coming with his saints. Jude, Jude chapter 14. No, excuse me. Jude, Jude verse 14. It only has one chapter. Jude, verse 14, proclaims, I quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment Upon all. Colossians 3, 4 tells us, quote, When Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's this moment. Here's the mother of all battles. Christ and heaven's army is facing off with Satan and his allies. Modern armies of all the nations are stretched out across Israel. When John says the door of heaven opens and out gallops Christ on his white horse, behind him are you and I and thousands upon thousands of saints coming with him. I believe we're going to be shouting like a bunch of Pentecostals. Oh, goodness. Now, I want you to use your imagination. You're coming with Christ. All you see around is a hostile battlefield. Military hardware aimed right at us. Tanks will fire their rockets. Missiles will launch. We'll hear surface-to-air zingers sailing past us. Explosions all around us. But then the Bible says something absolutely amazing happens. Verse 15, out of his mouth, out of the general's mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he smites all the nations. Remember, this is the final act in the colossal battle between God and Satan. This is the showdown that's been brewing ever since creation. No other battle has been given such hype and hoopla, 
so to speak. This is the spiritual Super Bowl. Armageddon. Yet it turns out to be a blowout. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 predicts its outcome. I quote, And then shall the wicked, and in the Greek it means lawless one, that's who? The beast, the antichrist. Be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. Now spirit in the Greek is ruk, which means breath. Consume with the breath of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The sword coming out of Christ's mouth is a symbol of his might. All he has to do is breathe on the beast, blow on the Antichrist, and he'll be blown away. It is the breath of death. He destroys the enemy by breathing God's word on him. His word, even his breath, is like a sharp sword. Then, so, so the God who breathed life into Adam's nostrils, later in the New Testament, breathed on his disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now breathes again and destroys the enemy. In the same passage, Paul tells the Antichrist is destroyed, with the brightness of Christ's coming. What his breath doesn't vaporize, the light of his glory will. The sheer brightness of Christ's coming at this moment will wither the beast, disintegrate the armies, and the Antichrist will suffer from a fatal case of sunburn. S-O-N. Huh? Never mind. Then verse 20 states that the beast and his false prophet will be cast where? Into the lake of fire. This demonic duo, the satanically inspired ruler and his apostate religious leader, who the Bible says paves his way, are now thrown into hellfire. Notice, this is Gehenna, which means the lake of fire. Christ said God created this lake really for the devil and his angels. But now it's going to be inhabited by these two stooges. Okay? Then Christ himself, notice on down, will rule with a rod of iron. This means when Christ returns, he will forcibly stop all sin, and all sinners. In the words of Psalm 2, he'll rule with a rod of iron. That means you comply or else. So what's that tell us? It tells us submission to Christ will become the culture of the day. And as a result, this planet will be a better, safer, happier, more peaceful place for sure. Verse 15 says, He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now, if you recall back in Revelation 14, there's blood, not wine, coming out of the winepress. Notice, we said that was because it's the, the, uh, the judgment of Christ. And I want you to see what chapter 19, verse 15 
says about Christ himself being the one to tread the winepress. He doesn't use an angel. He doesn't delegate this task. Because I want you to realize, sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin is a fist in Christ's face. And he takes it personal. So Christ is the one executing judgment on sinners. It's he himself because he takes their sin personally. Because sin is a rebellion against his will. And it is, it is an affront to his wisdom. It is a snub to his love. And when we do it continually and refuse to repent, it gets personal. And so then comes a point when Christ takes action. So he's the one treading the winepress of God's wrath. I mean, think about this. Who would enjoy heaven if it was spent with people who were hell-bent on defying God? How many know it wouldn't be heaven? That would be hell. So judgment has to fall to separate the sheep from the goats. And we'll get to that, and that's a whole nother thing. Okay, so where are we at? Point number five on your study guide. We finally come to Christ's exaltation. I want you to see, John says, Christ comes dressed for the job. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. John says Christ has a title, and it's actually scripted down his thigh. Now, the Lord, a lot of people think, oh, so he's burying his thigh and showing off a tattoo? I've actually heard people bring this up. Well, I can get a tattoo because Christ comes back in Battle of Armageddon with a tattoo on his thigh. I don't know where you're getting that. John is describing the Lord's monogrammed robe wrapped so that this magnificent title can be seen draped at his thigh. The thigh was the place where the warrior's sword would normally be mounted or strapped. The only weapon our Lord brings with him at this time is the power of his word. And there, draped across his thigh, is simply another name. And it's a name above every other name. It's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Those two titles are separately attributed to God in other parts of Scripture. But here, they come together and are given to Christ. It's another declaration of Christ's sovereignty and his deity, because the Caesars were fond of being called king and lord. So the monogramming on, <coughs> on Christ's robe simply states, there is no more supreme king than Christ. There is no greater lord than our lord. Everyone else is his subordinate. Everything else 
is his footstool. Hallelujah. The earth has been littered by for millenniums with so-called kings and lords. But how many know there is only one, only one king of kings. There is only one Lord of lords. Christ is the champion, and he's returning to the earth to take on all the challengers and to bring peace. How many's ever seen that bumper sticker that says, visualize world peace? When I read Revelation 19, that's what I do. I visualize world peace, but only after Christ annihilates Satan. Huh? And he retakes the reins of a runaway planet. And he conquers his enemies. He establishes his kingdom. And he enforces obedience to his sovereign will. Then and only then will we realize world peace. Right? Next, see what verse 17 Verse 17 is an invitation to another supper. The church is enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb in the first part of this chapter. But the last part of this chapter is a supper for the birds, for the vultures, for the flesh of the fallen. Birds will fly to the battlefield and consume the corpses. There will be so many that, what what we say? With the word of his mouth, our champion and our general just breathes, 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 breathes. And it says, the remnant were slain. With the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And you might think, how can God take a life? Let me answer that. How many realize what God does to the rebels there? He's done to his own son. How many realize the father oversaw Christ's death on the cross? Why? Because the wages of sin is always death. Now, Christ didn't sin, but he had to take my sin. Huh? He died in our place. <clears throat> because of his death, we don't have to die a spiritual death today. You only die now because you reject Christ. Each death, let me say it this way, each death at the Battle of Armageddon will be a senseless suicide. They didn't have to. They chose to. Right? And with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming, 
Christ defeats the beast and his army. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah tells us, Christ comes with his saints and will come all the way, all the way. He's not touching down the Lorraine, sorry. He's touching down, come on, where? Mount of Olives. Yeah. This is when he comes. And he will come all the way to the Mount of Olives where it says when he touches down on the mount, his foot will trigger a colossal quake. The Mount of Olives will split in two. Christ will then burst through the eastern gate that is actually sealed up today and go up the steps into the temple mount where he will cleanse the temple again and reign on earth for a thousand years of peace. Praise God. That is when the prayer that Christ prayed and taught his church to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. That's when that prayer will finally have its total fulfillment. The war will be over. Christ has evicted the squatters, retaken possession, but the earth has been tore up in the process. Right? So now, kind of a restoration program occurs, and it begins. Notice on your study guide, everything that sin has damaged, Christ will restore. Chapter 19 closes with the universe being under new management. Somebody say, what a day it's going to be. Like Paul writing to Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he says, looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our longing in these last days. Every believer should have that right here in their heart. Oh, this could be the day that it all starts taking place. No wonder one reformer said, and I quote, he said, there's really only two days on my calendar, today and that day. And I'm looking forward to that day. Oh, what a day that will be. Stand and take a hymn book, if you would, and join me. Page 367. Page 367. Can we sing about that day? Y'all feel like you can sing? Have I taken too long?
page 367 simply says what a day that will be there is coming a day when no heartache shall come no more clouds in the sky no more tears to dim the eye all is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore oh what a day glorious day that will be hallelujah what a day that will be when my jesus i shall see and i look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace when he takes me by the hand leads me through the promised land what a day it's going to be a reality that there'll be no sorrow there no more burdens to bear no more sickness no more pain no more parting over there and forever i will be with the one who died for me oh what a day glorious day oh thank you jesus what a day that will be when my jesus i shall see when i look upon his face hallelujah hallelujah when he takes me by the hand leads me through the promised land what a day thank you jesus thank you jesus thank you jesus how many believe it's growing closer with the passing of every day that day is coming closer with every day may god bless you these altars are open you're welcome to come just be reminded it could happen at any time if you go god bless you be found back in his house on sunday rejoicing in his goodness and looking forward to his appearing amen what a day that will be when my jesus i shall see when i look upon him.